Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Surprise Jab Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ruger, surprising you with new topics every single week and jabbing you with your daily dose of UFC. Episode 25, the 25th episode of the Surprise Jab Podcast. I can't believe it. I can't believe when I started this that I would actually make it this far. This is a milestone of sorts, the 25th episode of a podcast. I mean, after this, what do we have? 50, 75, 100? Who knows if we'll make it that far? I hope we do. I love bringing these uh, episodes out to you guys every single week. We got a good one today. Recapping UFC Fight Night, Grasso versus Shevchenko, better better known as UFC Noche, went down Saturday. I was able to catch it despite being at a party, so you, you know I always find a way to watch my UFC. We're also going to be uh, previewing Dana White's Contender Series, as always. Took some notes. Uh, the surprise topic for this episode, continuing our series of American Mysteries, is who killed Jimmy Hoffa. That's going to be a fun one. We're going to be talking about uh, week two of the NFL. We still have two games tonight. We still have two games tonight. We'll get to those. And I'm going to kick this off by talking about the new UFC 5 trailer. That's right. They dropped a second one. This one looking more at gameplay and features. So we're going to talk about that in a second. Hope everyone's having a good week. Uh, it's Monday. Monday's always determine how the week is going to go of sorts. You really got to kick Monday's butt right away. I mean... I mean, last night, uh, post-football, I mean, watch football all day, really kind of tires you out. Honestly, being lazy can tire you out. I uh, went and just did all my homework for the week, essentially. Just wrapped up my uh, business law cl- uh, class, the work for the week today. I took the tests, took our, like, ex- we have, like, an exam every week. I did get a 96%. Thank you very much. Very good stuff. Um, but, yeah. Lots of lots of business classes for me personally, which aren't you know, I'd I'd say school isn't fun, but then I could either be working. You know, it's kind of a it's kind of a tie off between either you work and you don't enjoy it, or you don't work and you don't make money. I don't know. I enjoy how my life right now, so I mean that that's as good as we need to be. But yes, the U next UFC five um, trailer dropped. Of course, the game drops October twenty seventh. Have not pre ordered it. I've been debating if I should get the like deluxe edition. I don't really think I need to. I think I might just buy the normal edition. But we'll see. But yeah, the new trailer. Came out, looked pretty interesting, narrated by DC and some EA developers, and I took some notes on stuff I got out of it, so they've really been emphasizing, especially in this trailer and in just marketing for the game, is this new Frostbite engine, and this Frostbite engine is supposed to make games look more realistic of sorts. They, They introduced it to Madden, and it did make somewhat of a difference, I did notice. Um, the character and environment rendering make it very realistic looking is what they are saying. So the audience, the people sitting cage side, ringside, I should say, um, just all, all, everything around you just from walking out the sweat, you bouncing off against the cage, stuff like that to make it look more real. And that's another thing they're pushing is their new real impact system. And this new real impact system, it's going to make cuts, bruising, and swelling occur in more realistic body spots, and it'll affect your gameplay called authentic 
damage. So if, if you have a cut on your eye, it will affect how defensive you are on that side if you're trying to defend from your right side or your left side. Um, leg kicks, if you get kicked your right leg a lot, you'll lose abilities on that side. And honestly, the leg kicks seem like they're going to be the meta in this game. They seem like they're going to be what you should be doing all the time as they are. They, well, From what I saw in the trailer, it looks like it, once you take out someone's legs, they're basically done for, which is kind of the case in UFC 4. But, I mean, they should, they should they should try and fix that a bit. But the cuts and bruising, I mean, it looks pretty brutal, looks realistic, and I really like it. I'm, I'm really liking what I've been seeing from this game so far. Um, the grappling, they were showing some of the grappling in this game. It looks great. They have all new scrambling abilities, looking to make it more seamless. Uh, submissions, I think, are going to pop up more easily. I don't know how they're going to work. But I know UFC 4 was better than UFC 3 with submissions. But at the same time, I mean, submissions take so long, they don't feel real. So, I mean, if you could have, like, make-or-break situations where they cinch in, like, an armbar, cinch in on the guillotine or something... I don't know. I trust EA, honestly. I know EA gets a lot of slack, but I trust them. I really do. Um, they have a new cinematic KO replay, which is going to allow us to rewatch our KOs. And, you know, it looks very good. They're showing some slow motion things. Uh, the hair movement, the sweat, the way the body was hitting looked very good. But they really need to add full fight replays. I don't know why they don't have this. It's, it's just kind of silly because I can only see some crappy string of uh, highlights they bring us together. I don't know how to even explain it, but I mean, when I think back to like NHL and Madden, is that like especially like NHL and NBA, you can rewatch the entire game. I don't understand why EA doesn't have that, especially since EA makes the NHL games. I don't know. Um, they have some new uh, referee stopping animations. Herb Dean actually gonna be stepping in on time to uh, stop the fights. I think it looks good. I, I I'm rocking with it. Uh, for all the online players, you can now go to draws in online fights. I really enjoy that feature. Going to make it more intense if you're in a five-round battle and the judges think it's a draw. I really want to see some more draws this year. They're such a rare thing. Uh, they have a new game mode called Fight Week, which really isn't that new. I think it's an adaption of the UFC 3, uh, eSports UFC 3, that is, um, game where basically every week any fighters that are in the video game that are fighting in real life, they'll have the matchups you can do there, and you'll predict what round they're going to finish the fight in, who's going to win. But uh, you can actually bet your EA coins in this game. So they have they have virtual fake betting in UFC uh, 5. That's just wonderful. They also have new alter egos, and they said they're going to drop up to four every month. Uh, just kind of, they have like Volkanovski when he was a rugby player, Valentina from like her UFC debut, Car McGregor from his UFC debut, uh, what other ones did they have? Leon Edwards from like his UFC debut, John Jones when he was young. I mean, I guess it's cool, but I want real fighters. I don't really want alter egos personally. That's why I'm not too high on Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali. I'm, I do enjoy the Fedor edition, but that's, I don't think it's going to make me want to spend 20 more dollars on the game. Uh, the career mode, it is back of course. And coach Davis is back. The one guy from the last game. Uh, very boring, very dull last time. But now they have Valentina Shevchenko. She did a bunch of facial work, some uh, vocal work of sorts. She's now an NPC in the game, going to help train you. I really enjoy that. They also have some new cinematics and some new locations. And they said they have a refined focus on onboarding, 
which I don't know what that means, but if I can assume it means getting you into matches quicker instead of having to train so much, I don't know. We'll have to see how that plays out. But UFC 5 drops October 27th. That's coming up. That's just about under a month. I think they have like two more trailers dropping the first week of October, second week of October, and then early access is in the third week of October. But hey, you know what? I'm here for it. I, I do love my video games, but not too much. I try not to spend too much time. Read your Bibles, kids. Go outside. Go play with your friends. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to be inspirational. What can I say? Uh, speaking of being inspirational, I mean, how about week two in the NFL? Some inspiring performances from some of these players. Um, let's do a little breakdown real quick. See how uh, see how week two is played out as of right now, fantasy wise. Oh man, I've been locked in some battles. That is for certain. If anyone uh, d- doesn't know, I'll basically share. I-, I do picks every single week for every NFL game, and I'm also in four fantasy football leagues. One of which is a twenty dollar buy in, ten people, so the winner gets two hundred dollars, basically one hundred eighty plus their twenty they put back in. In that league, I am going to be 0-2. It's pretty brutal. Um, But yeah, let's start off with the games. We'll talk about some fantasy performances in each of those. So, we kicked off the week with my Minnesota Vikings taking on the Philadelphia Eagles. And gosh dang it, we lost. I can't believe it. Um, I just, the Vikings, they've been in absolute turmoil through the first two weeks. But we can string it together. You know, they're going to count us out the next few games against the Bengals, the Chargers, the Chiefs. But I'm riding with, I'm riding out in the Vikings. Uh, the game, I honestly thought the game was pretty entertaining. It definitely got exciting towards the end. Vikings do lose 28-34. to We did put up two touchdowns in the fourth but giving up that touchdown in the fourth definitely screwed us over. Kirko Cousins didn't throw a pick this game, but did fumble, man. The fumbles are killing us. We lost, I think, four fumbles in this game. It was terrible. Kirk drops 31 for 44 on passing for 364 yards and four touchdowns. Jalen Hurts, 18 for 23, 193 yards, a pick and a touchdown. Kirk dropped 28.56 fantasy points in PPR leagues, which I was loving. TJ Hawkinson dropping 25.6 fantasy points on two touchdowns for uh, 66 yards. Justin Jefferson, of course, 11 receptions, 159 yards. Just an absolute menace. But I'll tell you where we lacked the rushing game. Alexander Madison, eight carries. Only, By the way, we only ran the ball nine times the whole game. Eight carries, 28 yards. Absolutely terrible fantasy performance. 4.9 points was atrocious. I don't even get it. But, I mean, Jordan Addison, three catches, 70 yards. He caught another touchdown. Our rookies got two touchdowns in two games. I love it. And uh, Theo Jackson got our pick. Um, But other than that, not much. I mean, Daniel Hunter actually got three sacks this game. So, shout out to Daniel Hunter. But, man, just nothing from our offense. But, actually, you know, it it was the fumbles. The fumbles is what hurt us. What am I saying? Um, Rushing-wise, DeAndre Swift killed us. DeAndre Swift, who was on the field for two plays in week one, went off for 28 carries, 175 yards, and a touchdown. He was insane. Boston Scott racking up 40 yards. And Jalen Hurts, of course, 35 rushing yards, two touchdowns. Jalen Hurts, always love him in fantasy. He dropped 25.22 points. And DeAndre Swift, by the way, 27 fantasy points. Devontae Smith, a lot of Ds on this team. My goodness, Devontae Smith drops 23.1 fantasy points. 
four catches, 131 yards, one touchdown. And A.J. Brown was heated again with apparently with Jalen Hurts for not giving him more uh, catches, but he also got four receptions. This is only for 29 yards. So A.J. Brown, I think Devontae Smith is better than you. And by the way, Dallas Goddard got the most receptions and targets with six, and he only got 22 yards. So if that says anything, Kirk only got sacked twice. But, I mean, just the fumbles is what killed us, sadly. But, you know what? We'll be back next week. I think we take on the Chargers, who are uh, also, Chargers are also 0-2. Eagles now 2-0. Good for the Eagles. Ugh, still makes me very sad. Ravens and Bengals. Wow, it started off bad for the Bengals again. I was about to say, are we about to witness the downfall of the Bengals before this young team can even start getting it going. But no, they kind of rallied towards the end, but the Ravens beat the Bengals 27-24. to Lamar Jackson, 237 yards, two touchdowns, passing 54 yards, rushing. Good day from Lamar. I know a lot of people are saying it's going to be his MVP season. Yet to see anything exceptional today, but... Who am I to judge? Gus Edwards leading on the ground, 62 yards and a touchdown. Receiving-wise, Nelson Aguilar, 63 yards and a touchdown. Mark Andrews, 45 yards and a touchdown. And Zay Flowers, who appears to be Lamar's uh, right-hand man in the receiving department, four catches, 62 yards. Odell Beckham, three receptions, 29 yards, got hurt. Might be out for the season. Wow, certainly shocking there. And the defense was able to pick Joe Shiesty off. Joe, better better week than week one, but still not still not up to his par. 222 yards passing, two touchdowns, and a pick. Joe Mixon gets 59 yards on the ground, but it's T. Higgins with eight receptions for 89 yards and two touchdowns, which leads the way. Jamar, wow, only five catches for 31 yards, yet to find his footing. Tyler Boyd had more catches and yards with six receptions for 50 two yards man oh man teetened up in the afc north we have another battle tonight of course between the browns and the steelers my current pick sheet i believe i have the browns tonight yes i am rocking with the browns over the steelers sorry seth if you're listening and uh saints and panthers i'm going to be riding with the saints in that one although the panthers historically beat the saints i uh, i do think the saints are better than the panthers Picks-wise, I'm currently sitting at 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Eight correct picks. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 6 incorrect picks. So not doing too bad. I think 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. 9. My girlfriend actually has more correct picks than me, and she barely watches football. That doesn't tell you anything. And I think I'm in like two picks league. I'm in one with my parents and my girlfriend, and then another one with my two buddies. And I think in the one with my two buddies, which we actually like, do money each week, like five bucks every single week. That it's, uh, and I think I'm gonna tie this week. So we'll see. We'll see how week three goes. But uh, yeah, we're rooting for the Saints and the Browns tonight. And wow, those the, those matchups are going to be, I hope, good. I don't know what too much. I don't expect too much. I mean, fantasy wise, I'm definitely going to need some players to pop off tonight. Um, in one league, I'm up eight, which is my twenty dollar buy on league, but my uh, buy in. League, but my opponent has Nick Chubb, Michael Thomas, and the New Orleans defense. So I'm definitely doomed there. In my 12-man league, uh, one of them, 
I uh, am up 31 points. My opponent has uh, George Pickens in. So, uh, Josh, I hope that George Pickens doesn't have a career historic game. In my six-man All-Star League, I'm up by five points. Uh, I mean, I'm down by five points. My cousin has Deshaun Watson. I have Chris Olave. I'm probably not going to win there. And in my Cato Boys League, my, of course, my Cato League 12-man with 12 buddies down here, or 11, including myself, I am up seven. I have Jamal Williams and Rashid Shahid. My my boy Garrett has Chris Olave and the New Orleans D. So we need a lot of things to happen. Who knows what will happen, but fantasy, it's not looking too good the first two weeks, but at the same time, it's only the first two weeks. Keeping us rolling with matchups, uh, the uh, where are we at? The Seahawks and the Lions having an excellent game, going to overtime. Um, wow, both teams now sitting at one and one. Geno Smith, 328 yards, two touchdowns. Jared Goff, 323 yards, three touchdowns, and a pick. Kenneth Walker getting it done on the ground with 43 yards, two touchdowns. As for the Lions, David Montgomery, 67 yards and a touchdown, but gets hurt and is apparently day-to-day now. Very sad stuff. He was taking a majority of the carries, 16 carries for him. Jameer Gibbs only at 7. So Jameer Gibbs' owner is very sad. Receiving-wise, Amon Ross St. Brown, 102 yards on 6 catches. Josh Reynolds, though, 66 yards for uh, 2 touchdowns. And Sam Laporta, my uh, sleeper for my tight ends, catching uh, 5 passes, 63 yards. And Khalif Raymond, actually... Managed to get a touchdown on two receptions for 46 yards for the Lions. As for the Seahawks, they were, uh, wow. Though, of course, the one week I decide to bench Tyler Lockett. He did bad week one. I slept on him. He goes off 59 yards on eight receptions for two touchdowns. Tyler Lockett had himself a day, 25 fantasy points. Geno even got 23 fantasy points somehow. Um, Metcalf, though, DK Metcalf, that is six receptions, 75 yards, led the team. Noah Fant was catching some balls, four receptions, 56 yards. Um, Trey Brown got the interception for the Seahawks, and they were able to get two sacks, I believe, on Jared Goff. Certainly a good game, but I did not think the Seahawks were going to be able to pull it together. They do, and uh, yeah, the matchups just keep rolling along. Um, into my upset pick of the week, the Raiders over the Bills. Yeah, that didn't go well. <laughs> that did not go well at all, did it? Bills kill the Raiders, 38-10. to 10. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what I was thinking, personally. I, I was just thinking the Bills were going to be reeling from that Jets loss. But they weren't. They were on point. Josh Allen gets 23 fantasy points. Gabe Davis, 21 fantasy points. James Cook, 19 fantasy points. Uh, just classic performance, 274 yards. For Josh Allen, three touchdowns. Uh, James Cook, 123 yards on the ground. But it was actually Damian Harris and Latavius Murray punching in the two rushing touchdowns. And Gabe Davis, six receptions, 92 yards, and a touchdown. Stephon Diggs, seven receptions, 66 yards. And the touchdowns go for Khalil Shakur, whose one catch was for a touchdown. And Dawson Knox, who only had three catches for 10 yards and got a touchdown. But... Good for them. Terrell Bernard and Matt Milano both get interceptions. I mean, Matt Milano, through the first two weeks of the year, has just been an absolute savage out there. I just feel like whenever a big play is being made on the Bills' defense, Matt Milano is involved, so good good job to him. As for the Raiders, I mean, Devontae Adams has himself a day. Uh, six receptions, 84 yards, and a touchdown. Gets 20 fantasy points. 
But Jimmy Garoppolo, 185 yards and a touchdown, but gets two picks. Rushing-wise, Trey Tucker, one carry for 34 yards, is the leader. As Josh Jacobs, on nine carries, gets negative two yards. Zamir White had four carries for 22 yards. Josh Jacobs was doing nothing. He did have five receptions for 51 yards, which saved him fantasy-wise. He got nine points. But uh, Hunter Renfro only had one catch, 23 yards. Austin Hooper, two catches, 20 yards. Just a tough day to be a Las Vegas Raider fan. But good job to the Bills. They will improve to 1-1. One and one. As for the Raiders, also 1-1. One and one. So don't fret too much, guys. Uh, what other 12 o'clock games did we have going down? Colts and Texans. Certainly a shocking one here, Ivy. The Colts come out absolutely on fire. In the first half, they go up 28-10. to 10. It was absolutely crazy. The Texans have a good rally in the fourth quarter, but it's not enough. Gardner Minshew, 171 yards and a touchdown. Anthony Richardson did unfortunately get concussed, came out of the game uh, with only 56 yards passing, but three runs, 35 yards, and two touchdowns on the ground. It's Zach Moss, though, who comes in rushing-wise. 18 carries, 88 yards, and a touchdown, who saves the day for the Colts. And, man, the Colts here... Actually looking pretty good. Zach Moss, 20 fancy points. Anthony Richardson, 17 fancy points. And I understand it's against the Texans, who suck. I understand the Texans suck. But, I mean, Michael Pittman, eight receptions, 56 yards was getting it done. They were able to get, uh, like, five. They were able to get, like, seven or eight sacks this game. Impressive stuff from the Colts. And you know what? C.J. Strode. I'm going to give it to him. 384 yards and two touchdowns. He was able to get stuff going through the air. I mean, Nico Collins had 146 yards and a touchdown. Robert Woods had 74 yards. Tank Dell, 72 yards and a touchdown. They were getting it done. But the rushing game, nothing. Damian Pierce, only 31 yards on 15 carries. Devin Singletary, four yards on, um, four, 14 yards on four carries. Just nothing going well for the Texans. They're now 0-2, Colts 1-1, but C.J. Stroud, I think, is slowly coming into himself a bit. I don't like to hate on him too much. It's only two games in, you know, and the Texans weren't expected to do too good. My divisional rival, the Bears, fall to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 27-17. Bears fall to 0-2, and the Buccaneers, who are going to be the worst team in the league this year, are now 2-0. Impressive stuff under Baker Mayfield, who had a career day today. 26 for 34, 317 yards and a touchdown. He even ran for 17 yards. Baker has been looking good with the Bucks. Rashad White, though, 17 carries, 73 yards and a touchdown, getting it done on the ground. And Mike Mother Truckin Evans, six receptions, 171 yards and a touchdown. An absolute savage on the fantasy field with 29 points. Incredible stuff from Mikey. I had him benched in my all-star league, but in my 12-man league, you know I had him playing. Chris Godwin gets 58 receiving yards on five catches, and Kate Auden, 41 yards on six receptions. Man, the Bucks don't know uh, don't know where they're going to go from here, but they looked good. But it's the Bears. I'll say this. The Bears, sorry if you're a Bears fan, but it's been a rough start for your season. Justin Fields, 211 yards passing, one touchdown, two picks, only rushed for... Uh, Three yards, was able to get one rushing touchdown. Khalil Herbert, seven carries, 35 yards. Rashawn Johnson, four carries, 32 yards. Not much going on. DJ Moore, though, highest fantasy performer with 16 points, was able to get six receptions for 104 yards. And the one touchdown caught today was by Chase Claypool. How about that? The man of controversy getting it done. But, I mean, Tremaine Edmonds led the day with eight tackles and eight assists. 
but oh, no sacks by the defense at all. That offensive line of the um, Bucks holding up well. Good for the Bucks. They'll improve, and the Bears fall again. But that was good for that was good for me, man, because the Vikings are now only one game behind both of the people with wins. That is the Lions and the uh, uh, Packers. Speaking of which, the Packers fall to the Falcons to my, just so happy, so happy they were able to do this, and this was a tough game. My goodness, I mean, Jordan Love, 20 points fantasy-wise, Jaden Reed, 19 points fantasy-wise, Desmond Ritter and Bijan Robinson go off for 21 fantasy points each, but Jordan Love, man, let me tell you guys, 151 yards, three touchdowns, very accurate, 14 for 25 A.J. Dillon leads the way rushing-wise with Aaron um, Jones out. 15 carries, 55 yards. No touchdowns, though, but it's actually receiving-wise. Dontavian Wicks, sorry, who gets one touchdown on his one one catch. No, he had a couple catches, didn't he? He had two catches. Wow. And Jane Reed, though, uh, four receptions, 37 yards, and two touchdowns. Low offensive day from the Packers as Desmond Ritter, 237 yards, a touchdown and interception. Did decent, but it was B. John Robinson, 19 carries, 124 yards, four receptions, 48 yards. Just an absolute savage. The juke moves, the weaving, the bobbing. Bijan looked good. Desmond Ritter runs in for a touchdown. Drake London catches a touchdown. Just a good performance from the Falcons overall. They're now 2-0. and 2-0 now for the Atlanta Falcons as the Packers go down to 1-1. One and one. Rounding out, no, we had a couple more. New, we had two more noon games. We'll talk about the Chiefs and Jaguars real quick. 17-9, this was a very tough-fought game, and the Chiefs just haven't looked like their dominant self they're supposed to be. Travis Kelsey's return does not go as planned. Only catches four receptions for 26 yards. Does get his classic touchdown, but only 12 fantasy points to show. Mahomes, a typical 305-yard day, two touchdowns. Throws another pick, though. Isaiah Pacheco getting uh, 70 yards on the ground. Sky Moore leads the receiving department with three receptions for 70 yards and one touchdown. And guess who had the most catches on the team? Kadarius Toney with five catches for 35 yards. Did not see that coming at all. As for the Jags, Trevor Lawrence, man, 216 yards, uh, 26 yards rushing. Did not have a bad day per se, but didn't do much. Only 9.26 fantasy points, not helping us at all. Christian Kirk has the best day with 21.96 fantasy points on 11 receptions for 110 yards. Calvin Ridley, two receptions for 32 yards. He did have a lot more targets, but the Chiefs backfield had him locked down and the Chiefs defense only able to string together one sack or no the um pardon the the Jaguars were only able to string together one sack on Patty Mahomes Chiefs improved to one and one Jaguars uh one and one as well right Jaguars won week one right Sometimes I forget. Too many too many matchups to remember. Uh rounding out the noon games we had the Chargers and the Titans Wow, I cannot believe the Chargers are actually 1-0-2 now. The Titans are 1-1. One and one. and th- they, this really surprised me that the Titans were able to get the win here. I thought they were going to get destroyed. Chargers, Justin Herbert, 305 yards for two touchdowns. 
Nothing on the ground. Joshua Kelly leads the day with 13 carries for 39 yards. Keenan Allen gets it done, though. An absolute monster. 31-point fantasy performance. Eight receptions, two touchdowns. Mike Williams, eight catches for 83 yards as well. But, man, just nothing going for him. It was, it was just brutal. I mean, they are able to string together an impressive five sacks on, uh, pardon, on um, Ryan Tannehill. But it's the Titans. Ryan Tannehill, no turnovers today, 246 yards and a touchdown. Derrick Henry, 80 yards and a touchdown. Ryan Tannehill actually ran in a touchdown. Traylon Burks, three receptions, 76 yards. Chris Moore gets one catch for 49 yards. Uh, yeah, just nothing much going on here. Titans win the game. They are now 1-1, one and, one, and the Minnesota Vikings and Chargers, one of those teams is going to get their first win of the year. Good for them. I suppose. We're, we're going to kill them. We're, Vikings, we got this. Okay, we got this. Head into our three, three, 30 games, right? One, two, three, correct. 49ers and the Rams. 49ers win 30-23, to 23, improved to 2-0. Rams, only 1-1. One one. No, no need to get too sad. Brock Purdy throws for 206 yards and runs in a touchdown, capping off his 14-point fantasy day. But it's Christian McCaffrey, as always, 20 carries, 116 yards and a touchdown. And even had 19 yards receiving on three catches. Who gets 22.5 fantasy points? And guess who led the day receiving-wise? Six receptions, 63 yards. My flex player, Debo Samuel, also had five carries for a touchdown. Man, Debo, 22 fantasy points. Very happy to see. I love you, Debo. I really do. Juan Jennings gets 51 yards receiving. Ayuk simmered off from week one. Three catches, 43 yards. And Demorde Lenoir... And Isaiah Oliver, both getting interceptions. Good for them. The Rams, Matthew Stafford is picked off twice, but does throw for 307 yards and a touchdown. 34 for 55 on completion attempts. Wow, he was slinging the ball. Kyrene Williams has a day with 14 carries for 52 yards and a touchdown. Six receptions, 48 yards and a touchdown. He gets fifth, uh, He gets 20, 28 fantasy points. Sorry. And Puka Nakua... The rookie, 30 fantasy points on 15 receptions for 147 yards. That's right, 15 receptions. That's 15 points right there. Wow. Crazy good stuff from uh, him, but 49ers are just looking too primed this year. I'll tell you, a team that I was not expecting to be this dominant, the Cowboys. And I understand it's just defense um, is the main part of this team. The offense is certainly not what it is with Aaron Rodgers. But, man, the Cowboys, they pick off Zach Wilson three times. Dak throws for 255 yards and two touchdowns. Tony Pollard rushes 25 times for 72 yards. Actually, it's, it's pretty good defensive-wise, I'd say. But CeeDee Lamb gets 25 fantasy points on 11 receptions for 143 yards. He was killing the backfield. My goodness. The Jets, Zach Wilson throws for 170 yards, one touchdown, three interceptions thank goodness it was Garrett Wilson was able to get a touchdown but only two receptions for 83 yards nothing much Tyler Conklin leads the way with five receptions just a just a brutal performance from the Jets they fall to oh one and one Cowboys now two and oh looking very dominant to round out our 330 games commanders and Broncos might have had the game of the week as of right now there have been some good ones but man man oh man 
Where do we begin with this game? So first off, not, nothing much going on. Uh, Fourteen to twenty-one at halftime. Broncos are winning. Typical game. Starting to get a bit more closer. It's um, twenty-one to twenty-four heading into the fourth quarter, where the Commanders start to take a uh, take advantage. I mean, Sam Howell had two hundred ninety-nine yards and two touchdowns. Brian Robinson, Brian Robinson Jr. leads the way with eighty-seven yards rushing, two touchdowns. 28.9 fantasy points. He also had two catches for 42 yards. Terry McLaurin, 54 yards and a touchdown. Good for him. But the day goes to Russell Wilson, who throws for 308 yards, three touchdowns, only one interception, also ran for 56 yards. He drops 25.92 fantasy points and lands a Hail Mary to tie, the not to tie the game, to only be down two points. It was absolutely crazy. One of the greatest Hail Mary catches, just improbable. I mean, just a tip ball. I, I don't even know who got it. I think it was B. Robinson, I believe, believe B. Johnson. What's, what's his name? We, first off, Cortland Sutton, what are you doing, buddy? Need you to get some more catches. But uh, it was Brandon Johnson who had two catches for 66 yards, two touchdowns. One of those was the Hail Mary. Marvin Mims, 113 yards on two receptions for a touchdown. And Cortland Sutton, five catches, 66 yards. Need more from you, buddy. But, man, then they failed the two-point conversion. Commanders are now 2-0. and Broncos are a good 0-2, though. The Broncos look way better than last year. Holy crap, I've been chatting about week two of fantasy football for week two of the NFL for a while. I got a bit sidetracked um, to round out to week two as of right now. The Dolphins beat the Patriots 24-17 to on Sunday night football. Just um, just a typical typical game. Not, nothing much really here to look at. Dolphins are now 2-0. and Patriots are now 0-2 somehow despite playing two very good games. Two of throws for 249 yards, a touchdown and a pick. Raheem Mostart leads the day on the ground, 121 yards rushing, two touchdowns. Tyreek catches a pass, um, catches a touchdown, I should say. He had five catches for 40 yards. Jalen Waddle, four catches, 86 yards. For the Pats, Mac Jones, 231 yards, touchdown and pick. Ramondre Stevenson, 50 yards rushing and a touchdown. Hunter Henry, six receptions, 52 yards and a touchdown. I believe Hunter Henry, as of right now, is the best tight end in the league, fantasy-wise. Uh, he led the day in fantasy-wise and caught the only passing touchdown. That's all I should say. Um, but, yes, that's your week two. Uh, lots of interesting things. Dolphins lead the AFC East as of right now, 2-0. and Pats still 0-2. Raiders. Chiefs currently tied for the top of the AFC West. Chargers and Broncos both don't have a win. Steelers look to get their first win tonight. Ravens 2-0. Bengals 0-2. Texans 0-2. Man, a lot of teams without wins. Uh, Cowboys, Eagles, and Commanders all 2-0. Wow. NFC East. Um, and the worst division might be the NFC North. Vikings and Bears both 0-2. But we're going to get a win this week. Don't fear. I mean, next week, I should say. Or I guess this is a new week. I guess this is a new week. But NFL's weird. I mean, with these Monday night games, now, now I have to adjust when I say it's a new week. So... We'll see. We'll see. A lot of NFL talk to take up some time, but let's get into UFC. We all love UFC. Only got three more segments left, and one of them, a recurring thing, at least for the next three weeks after this, is Dana White's Contender Series going down tomorrow, Tuesday. If you listen to this, it went down on September 19th. Yes, Dana White's Contender Series, Season 7, Episode 7. 
Five more matchups coming at you. Should be some good ones. Um, I took notes. I gathered some info. And we'll uh, give our predictions and our thoughts on every matchup. Because that's what we do. We love UFC. man. And also, I'll be recapping UFC Noche after this and our surprise topic. I think we'll go Dana White's Contender Series right now. Surprise topic. Then we'll recap UFC Noche because I always like recapping the UFC events to end it. All right. Sounds like a plan. Let's get into it. We got five matchups coming at you, kicking us off. Ooh, and actually the uh, Verdict uh, MMA, the app I use, just updated so we can drop our live predictions on there. Kicking us off in the flyweight division, we have Igor Da Silva taking on Hanata Silva. Huh, Battle of the Silvas. Igor Silva, 7-0. and Hinata Silva, 8-1. and Igor is 5'7", Hinata 5'5", five five, 2 inches for Igor. And 69-inch uh, reach for Igor, 66 for Hinata, 3 inches there, and a reach advantage. So yeah, both orthodox. So a reach advantage and a high advantage, nothing too notable in favor of Igor. Igor is actually from Sao Paulo, Brazil, is 20 years old. He was born April 21st, 2003. He's from my generation, which I think is just absolutely nuts. Um, he uh, trains out of Shootbox Muay Thai, which uh, under Juan Emilio, who has produced current UFC fighters Melquizal Costa, who has that one skin condition where he has like some pigments somewhere. You probably recognize him. And Johanderson Brito, who's been an absolute killer in the featherweight division as of late. But yeah, two notable guys from that gym. Um, of his seven victories, three KOs, four subs, that's 100% finish rate. For Igor Da Silva. I love it. I love it. Hanata Silva, also 8-1, is actually 26 years old, born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Currently fights out of Rome, Italy. How about that? I would love to have another Italian fighter in the UFC. We have like two right now or something. Marvin Vittori is probably the biggest named uh, Italian fighter. But uh, he's technically... I don't know what he classifies himself as. I'll have to see what flag he walks out to. But um, of his eight wins, five by KO, one by sub. Good for Hinata Silva. He is um, currently on. Uh, what's his, I don't know what his win streak is, actually. I missed that. What's his... Um, let's check it out. Hinata Silva. I mean, eight and one. He's won his last one, two, three, four, five. He's currently on a five-fight win streak. Okay. Good for him, but yeah, we're riding with Igor Da Silva, 20 years old. He's only my age, at least for the next two weeks. Then I turn 21. Let's go. And um, he's also trains with some really good killers out of the uh, Brazilian land of UFC fighters. So we're going with Igor Da Silva, but certainly should be a competitive matchup in the flyweight division. And we need more flyweights in the UFC, so I will happily take the winner of this. And into our second fight of the evening in the lightweight division, we have Dylan the Quiet Man Mantello versus Kanan Bahia, Krush Whiskey. Wow. Dylan is 7-2. Kanan is 14-2. One-inch height for Dylan, 6 foot 1 to 6 foot. And same reach at 73 inches. Also orthodox style for both of these guys. Um, Dylan is currently 30 years of age. Age actually went to LSU, Louisiana State University. Wonder if he ran into Shaq and Livy Dunn down there. Huh? No one understands that. Okay, 
Um, he uh, currently resides out in New York and fights out of Longo and Weidman MMA with some notable names, Dennis Bazukja, who recently fought in the Contender Series this season, Nazim Sadikov, an absolute killer out of the lightweight division, currently undefeated, looking for a rank spot soon, and Charlie Campbell, who we're actually going to talk about at UFC Noche, just got a big knockout win. So he trains with some good fighters of his seven victories, four by KO, two by sub, currently on a three fight win streak Dylan Mantella looking pretty good but his opponent Kanan Krishki 14 and 2 32 years of age five fight win streak currently fights out of Sao Paulo Brazil of his 14 victories four by knockout eight by submission whoo Kanan is a killer on the ground I mean just Excellent, excellent jujitsu skills, excellent grappling skills, which is what I'm expecting tonight from his performance. We'll have to see how it goes. I'm probably leaning towards Kanan for this fight, but Dylan trains with some good people. Should expect some good stuff out of him. Um, no fighters on this card tonight have ever been on the Contender Series before. Sometimes we have people who've been on multiple times. I know Steve Wynn last week had been on three times after his last fight. But, uh, yeah, we're riding with Kanan for this one. But, hey, let me know who you guys are leaning towards. Moving into our third fight, women's strawweight action. We have a women's fight tonight as Stephanie Rondina Luciano takes on Talita Alencar. Stephanie, 23 years of age. Talita, 32 years of age. Ooh. Stephanie is 5-1. and one. Talita is 4-0. and oh. Stephanie, 5'6". Talita, 5'1". Notable 5-inch inches there um reach wise 65 inch reach for stephanie 58 inches for talita wow i've never seen someone under 60 inches of reach that's actually crazy talita very undersized here my goodness um stephanie currently on a two fight win streak fights out brazil muay thai specialist of her five wins two are by knockout wowza i cannot believe the size difference here let me tell y'all do not underestimate talita Alan Carr. She is very, very good. 32 years of age. She is 4-0, known for her grappling. She's from Brazil, but is actually part Caribbean. Hmm. Three submissions to her name. She actually trains at MMA Masters. Notable people who fought at MMA Masters. I mean, so many, but Colby Covington, per se. You probably know who Colby Covington is. Ia Topira, undefeated featherweight. Recently won this past summer. He's going to be getting a ranked guy coming soon, maybe even a title shot. And Nate the Train Landwehr, a fan favorite of the MMA. So Talita trains with some of the best. She certainly knows how to grapple. I'm sure she'll be rolling for something right away. So we're going to go with Talita in this one. And honestly, I can see all these people getting submissions for some reason. I feel like a lot of them are good at submissions. But man, Talita is certainly undermatched. New to MMA, it would appear, but she's had a lot of grappling fights, a lot of amateur fights of sorts. Man, I'll be interested to see how those two look when they get in the octagon. Heading into our fourth fight of the evening, our co-main, if you want to call it that. It's not, but it is. It's in a weird way. We have Jacoby Big Toe Jones taking on Daniel Allen. Um, Jacoby is six and one, Daniel four and oh, Jacoby is five foot nine, Daniel six foot, 75 inch reach for Daniel, 72 inches for Jacoby. So pretty evenly matched. Jo Jacoby Jones, 27 years of age. He is a wrestler currently on a three fight win streak, two KOs and two subs of his six victories. Fights out of Denver, Colorado actually fights out of, um, factory X MMA Muay Thai 
Anthony Smith fights there. Anthony Smith, legend of the light heavyweight division. Dustin Jacoby, another ranked light heavyweight. And Brandon Royval, top five flyweight. Could be getting a title shot soon. So he trains with some good fighters. But Daniel Daniel James Allen, or James Allen, whatever his freaking name is. Whew. Four and O. San Jose, California. That's where he's from. 31 years of age. Two knockouts of his four victories. But he trains out of AKA American Kickboxing Academy under Javier Mendez. Let me just tell you some of the people who trained there. Habib, Daniel Cormier, Luke Rockhold. I mean, this is a notable gym. The greats, the Dagestani legends all fight out of there. Who Daniel James. It's a, I don't know why. So I was using um a uh was it tapeology to get my um names for these and it has daniel allen listed as daniel james allen so it must be his middle name but it lists it for some reason and as for verdict it lists him as dan allen so i have no idea what to expect here um gonna be certainly very interesting <laughs> but um yeah we're riding with uh daniel allen for certain i mean he, he trains with khabib and daniel cormier what more do you want from me what more do you want from me uh, let's let's move on. But Jacoby Jones also trains with some good people, so don't sleep on him either. Heading into our fifth fight, our final fight, our main event, if you want to call it that. Shamil Gazioff takes on Greg the Viking King Velasco. Shamil is 10-0. Greg is 6-0. Shamil 6-4. Greg 6-2. 78-inch reach advantage for Shamil. <laughs> 78 inches to 70 inches. In favor of Shamil for reach, so eight inches in advantage. Shamil is an orthodox fighter. Greg fights southpaw. 10-0, wow. Shamil, born in Russia, currently fights out of Baran. Baran is actually, I'd never heard of Baran before this. Um, Baran is like an island in West Asia or something. I, I have no idea, but certainly very cool. I think he's the first UFC fighter out there. He's 33 years old. Of his 10 victories, 7 by knockout, 2 by submission. He trains at KHK MMA team with Islam Mahat Makachev, the current lightweight champion. Mohamed Mokayev also fights out of that gym. Notable ranked flyweight. Has a big fight coming up in October. His last win, actually, he knocked out Darko Stosic, who had fought in the likes of Jamal Hill, Kenny Nchukwe, Devin Clark in the UFC. So he just knocked out a guy who took the current light heavyweight champion to a decision. Jamil is legit, okay? He's got a big reach advantage, known for knocking out. But Greg, man, Greg Velasco, the Viking King, he's from New Jersey, 29 years old, three KOs and two subs of his six victories. He last fought March 31st. That's all I got for Greg. Sorry, Greg. Shamil is probably going to knock you out in 30 seconds. Shamil looks like an absolute beast. He's got the height. He's got the reach. We'll definitely be riding with Shamil Gazi, man. It's going to be a good contender series. I can just feel it. I can just feel it. After researching these fights, I have a very good feeling that these are going to be some banger fights. Uh, definitely my lock of the night's probably Shamil. <laughs> I'm really interested to see Daniel Allen, though. I mean, he trains at AKA. Um, Talita Allen Carr. I mean, she's under match. Kanan Kriski. It's rare you see a fighter on here with 16 professional fights. And Igor Da Silva, 20 years old. So we got some notable things on the contender series, but... Hey, we'll see how it goes. Let me know who you guys all think will win. Follow me on Verdict. Get your predictions. Follow me on TikTok, Instagram, 
Heck, even add me on Snapchat to text me your fight predictions. Who knows? But that's all of Dana White's contender series we have. I think up next we bring into we go into our surprise topic. Before we get into that, gonna take a quick intermission. Then we'll get into who killed Jimmy Hoffa. And we are back. Of course, like we never left. So I figured I would give a brief thing about who Jimmy Hoffa was. Jimmy Hoffa was a notorious mobster back in the 1960s until the 70s a bit. Um, Sort of worked in, he did a lot of illegal activities of sorts. He was a teamster technically, but he was very involved with the mob. And he mysteriously disappeared in 1975. But we're going to dive into that right now. Of course, we are using the more unsolved mysteries of American history from Jamestown to Jimmy Hoffa by Paul Aaron. So he's part of the title. Let's get into it. So Jimmy Hoffa left his suburban Detroit home in the early afternoon of July 30th, 1975. He stopped briefly to see an old friend who ran a nearby limousine service, but the friend had already left for lunch. How sad, Jimmy. Hoffa then drove to the Matches Red Fox restaurant where he expected to meet Anthony Giacolon and Anthony Provenzano. Tony Jack and Tony Pro were also his uh, old friends, or at least old acquaintances from the days when Hoffa ran the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, as I mentioned. At about 2.30, Hoffa called his wife to ask if she'd heard from Giacolon. And then he told her that it looked like he'd been stood up. It was the last she or anyone ever heard from him. Few doubted he was dead. Giacolone and Provisiano were mixed up with the mafia, as was Hoffa himself. The jokes quickly circulated. Je, up with the the jokes quickly circulated. Jacques Costa had spotted Hoffa's body, or it was under the end zone of the new Meadowlands football field where the concrete had just been poured. This was, the FBI agreed, a mob-related execution. Oh, Jacques Costa was, um, he was involved with, um, the, like, city projects and stuff. Okay, I get I get it now. Yet Hoffa's body was never found even to this day. Gia Cologne and Provisiano had all airtight alibis, and neither they nor anyone else was ever charged with the murder. Hoffa's disappearance remains one of the most intriguing in American history, partly because Hoffa himself was so intriguing. Was he, as Robert Kennedy put it, the leader of a conspiracy of evil, a union leader who had been sold, who had sold out the union membership and put gangsters and racketeers in important positions of power within the Teamsters? Or was he, as many Teamsters believe then and now, persecuted because he stood up for the people he represented? Of course, always two coins of every story. For what he did for the driver, I'd take a chance on him again, one Teamster said, after Hoffa was convicted of misusing union pension funds. If he robbed a little, what the hell? Hoffa's connections to the mob, it was clear, were the key to solving the mysteries of his life, as well as his death. Bum, bum, Kennedy's first efforts to connect uh, Hoffa to the mob were directly... Um, Unsuccessful. Distinctly <laughs> unsuccessful, I should say. As chief counsel to the Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in the Labor or Management Field, Candy led an investigation that called 1,525 witnesses over two and a half years. In 1957, after attorney John Chiesty testified that Hoffa had attempted to bribe him to turn over confidential committee papers, whoa, Candy was confident that he had the goods on the labor leader to convict him. If Hoffa isn't convicted, he announced, I'll jump off the Capitol Dome. 
I wonder if Kennedy did that. Four months later, after a jury found Hoffa not guilty of conspiring to obstruct the committee's inquiry, defense attorney Edward Bennett Williams offered to send Kennedy a parachute. How about that? The committee's final report was almost 50,000 pages long and resulted in the 1959 Landrum-Griffin Act and the first government regulation of internal union affairs. The investigation also led to the expulsion of the Teamsters from the AFL-CIO and prison terms for several Hoffa associates. But Hoffa himself remained both free and in charge of the union. When John F. Kennedy became president and made his brother attorney general, it was clear Hoffa would become a top priority of the Justice Department. Everyone in my family forgives, the Kennedy's father once said, except Bobby. The new attorney general quickly set up a special unit whose lawyers described themselves as the Git Hoffa Squad. I actually read this in another book. In 1962, prosecutors charged Hoffa with negotiating a sweet squad um, or sweetheart deal with one trucking company in return for sending its business to another, which happened to be owned by Hoffa's wife. Again, a jury found him not guilty, but that case turned out to be the labor leader's undoing when Hoffa aided Edward Parton. Edward would then tell on him, and he would tell prosecutors that his boss had bribed the jurors. In 1964, another jury found Hoffa guilty of tampering. In that same year, yet another jury convicted Hoffa of conspiracy and fraud and having to do with the Teamster Pension Fund. So Hoffa was then sentenced to eight years in prison. In 1967, his appeals exhausted. He entered the, he entered the federal penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, it was in Lewisburg, according to FBI reports, that Proviziano, who was um, serving a four-year term for extortion, decided he wanted Hoffa dead. The two had once been allies. Provenzano, a member of the Genovese crime family, ran Teamster Local 560 in Union City, New Jersey, and had supported Hoffa in his rise to Union presidency. At first, he also protected Hoffa from the dangers of prison, and two regularly sat together at mealtime. The relationship went awry when Provisano asked Hoffa for help getting credit towards his team's pension, which he um, was being denied because of the Landstrom-Griffin Act. It, it, it actually, that act barred prisoners convicted of extortion from holding union office until five years after their ex um, incarceration ended. Hoffa refused, telling Tony Pro, as he's called, it's because of people like you that I got into trouble for the first place. Whoo. The feud intensified after the two men were released from prison, Provenzano in 1970 and Hoffa a year uh, later, was when they were both released. The latter sentence, uh, Hoffa's, was commuted by President Richard Nixon, one of the few men who resented the Kennedys more than Hoffa did. The two men, oh, never mind. Richard Nixon was not president yet. He was just a senator. The two met several times during 1973 and 74, and Provenzano once threatened to pull out Hoffa's guts. Yikes. Provenzano's friend, Gia Colon, was an equally threatening figure. This was a man who had ran an exterminating company and was, as Hoffa's biography, biographer writer Arthur Sloan put it, thought to be capable of the extermination of humans as well as animal and insect life. Even Jimmy Hoffa, not an easy man to intimidate, must have been unnerved by the promised violence of Tony Pro and Tony Jack. So when the two proposed that they all get together for a peace meeting, per se... At the Machu's Red Fox restaurant, Hoffa must have been relieved. He must have been like, yes, my two, these two men who terrify me want to make ends, per se. He must have also been increasingly nervous when Provenzano and Gia Colon failed to show up to the restaurant, though. Tony Pro, it turned out, was in Union City, New Jersey, 
playing Greek rummy in plain view of plenty of people. That was definitely for a reason. Provenzano's brother later explained the game, you knock everybody out, and when one man remains, he's the winner. Typical mob style. Tony Jack was at a Detroit Southfield Athletic Club having a massage and haircut and noticed by so many people that an FBI, FBI memo concluded Giacalone definitely appeared to be establishing an alibi. Clearly, both of these men were establishing alibis. According to the FBI's theory, Provenzano assigned the hit to Salvatore and Gabriel Reguglio and Thomas Andretta. Two of them picked up Hoffa at the Machos Red Fox and killed him. FBI agents accumulated a variety of evidence, including the statements of a prison informant and of an eyewitness who thought she'd seen Salvatore Brugliano on July 30th, 1975, in a car parked at the Manchus Red Fox restaurant. But the Brugliago brothers and Andrada maintained they were in New York City. I mean, Union City, New Jersey. That day, and they were playing Greek Romeo with Tony Pro, and the Bureau never could shake their alibis, at least not enough to take care of the Take the case to court, you would say. And in any matter, many in the Bureau believe Provenzano, Giacalone, and their alleged accomplices wouldn't have killed Hoffa without approval from the higher-ups. That is how the mob works. The generally accepted theory was the mob leaders had grown very comfortable with Hoffa's successor as Teamster President, Frank Fitzmans. True, they'd once worked quite well with Hoffa, but Fitzsimmons lacked his predecessor's temper and independent streak. So when Hoffa started making noises about making a comeback into the mob, not at all impossible, uh, even his continuing popularity with uh, and his rank and his able to manipulate things, uh, the mob decided to eliminate this possibility of ever happening. They turned to Provenzano because they knew he had his own reasons for wanting Hoffa dead. Hoffa's son shared the FBI's suspicion that his father was killed to keep him from retaking the presidency. Dad was pushed so hard to get back in office, James B. Hoffa recalled. I was increasingly afraid that the mob would do something about it. And they definitely did. I'm sorry, James. In 1975, as the FBI investigated Hoffa's death, a Senate committee learned that the CIA, with mafia help, had attempted to assassinate Fidel Castro. Hmm, what do you have to say about that, Bobby Kennedy? In 1977, as the FBI continued to probe Hoffa's death, a House committee investigated the death of John Kennedy by the time the congressional committees were done, the assassinations and attempted assassinations of Castro, Kennedy, and Hoffa were all entangled, at least in the minds of some conspiracy theorists. For starters, Hoffa hated the president, okay? Not as much as he hated his brother, of course, but by extension, plenty. Edward Parton, the Hoffa aide who had told prosecutors about his boss's jury tampering, also told them, and he also later told the House Assassinations Committee, that his boss had talked about killing that son of a bitch, Bobby Kennedy. That wasn't the only connection between the labor leader and the president's assassination. Jack Ruby, the man who shot Lee Harvey Oswald, was the number two man in a Teamster affiliate run by a close friend of Hoffa. And Hoffa was also friendly with Tampa godfather, Santo Traficante and New Orleans godfather Carlos Marcelo, both of whom were targets of the attorney general and both of whom had spoken, at least according to some witnesses, of murdering the president. Robert Blakey, the chief counsel for the House Committee, believed the mafia was behind the president's assassination and he named three suspects, Traficante, Marcelo, and Hoffa. For some conspiracy, conspiracy theorists, it was only a short jump from Hoffa as assassination to Hoffa as target. So the logic went like this. The mafia wanted Castro dead be because he was bad for their business in Cuba. 
The CIA want Castro dead for political reasons. So Castro, in revenge for the joint CIA mafia attempts on his life, killed Kennedy. Alternatively, the mafia, in revenge for Bobby's anti-organized crime efforts, killed John. Then the mafia killed Hoffa because they feared he might tell what he knew about either their anti-Castro or anti-Kennedy plots. Both could be plausible. With the, White, with the House and Senate both investigating, the late 1970s were the heyday of assassination conspiracy theories. Among the most persuasive was that of Dan Moldea, an investigative journalist whose 1988 book, The Hoffa Wars, stopped short of concluding exactly how the labor leader was involved, but suggested that the solution was to be found in the consistent cast of characters that threaded its way through Hoffa's life. life and through 15 years of American political violence. The men suspected of ordering Hoffa's murder, Modella noted, were the same men suspected of plotting to kill Castro and Kennedy, Travacante, Marcelo, Proviziano, and others. There is therefore considerable reason to believe, Modella continued, that Hoffa was removed for reasons more complicated than mere ambition. Other conspiracy theorists tied Nixon to Hoffa's murder, alleging that the president feared that Hoffa, if he couldn't regain control of the Teamsters, might reveal secret union payoffs to Nixon. Um, others blamed government agencies for Hoffa's murder. Hoffa assistant Joseph Franco, for example, claimed in his uh, book that he was present at the Red Fox restaurant and that he witnessed three men pick up his boss. They were typical Ivy Leaguers, Franco wrote, with sports jackets and shirts and ties. And you could see that they were either federal marshals or federal agents. Franco didn't say why the marshals or agents wanted Hoffa dead. He had no clue. The problem with all of these conspiracy theories was that there was no hard evidence to, to substantiate any of it. There's no evidence that Traficante or Marcelo had done anything more than talk about assassinating Kenny or that Hoffa had been talking about hitting the president, ordering a hit, as opposed to his brother. Most historians eventually conclude that Oswald acted alone, which is obviously false in the murder of Kennedy. And as far as Hoffa's own disappearance was concerned, the FBI didn't even have enough evidence to indict Provenzano or Gia Cologne, or Andrade, or the Brugalios, let alone other mobsters or Cubans or government agents. In 2000, the FBI got a break in the form of DNA analysis that hadn't been available back in the 70s. They matched hair taken from Hoppe's brush with the strand found in a car owned by Joey Gia Cologne, Tony's son. This was a car that Hoffa's foster son, Chucky O'Brien, had already admitted he'd borrowed from Gia Cologne the day Hoffa disappeared. When the DNA evidence proved Hoffa had been in the car, suspicion focused on O'Brien. O'Brien's presence that day could explain how Hoffa's murders got him to leave the restaurant quietly. After all, the labor leader was fully aware of the dangers of dealing with Provenzano or Giacolone or anyone they sent to pick him up. But if his trusted foster son showed up, that would have at least partially uh, allayed his fears per se. The FBI suspected O'Brien might have been in on the murder, perhaps because he was angry at Hoffa's refusal to help him repay his gambling debts. Or O'Brien may have been duped by the murders. It is quite possible that O'Brien simply thought he was taking Hoffa to just another meeting, one government official told Modella. But even if that's true, O'Brien certainly became an accessory to the subsequent cover-up. Back in 75, O'Brien told the FBI that he never saw his foster father on the day of his disappearance and that he borrowed Giacolone's car to run some errands. Grilled by prosecutors, 25 years later, he stuck to his story. Ultimately, prosecutors decided that the DNA evidence wasn't enough to bring charges against him. It has the makings of a whodunit novel, only unfortunately, 
Without the final chapter being written, Prosecutor David Gorka told the Detroit Free Press in August 2002, but we may someday get lucky and someone will come forward. Someone involved in the case may want to cleanse their conscience. How clear was James R. Hoffa's conscious? That too remains in dispute. To many journalists, he was a gangster and racketeer, a Foschian criminal who sold out the Teamsters to the Mafia and who fully disserviced the prosecutorial, wow, what a word, attentions Robert Kennedy had heaped upon him. Bordello writes, Jimmy Hoffa's most valuable contribution to the American labor movement came at the moment he stopped breathing. To most rank-and-file members of the union, however, Hoffa was a true hero, a man who dramatically improved the working conditions of millions in what had once been the, among the poorest and most dangerous paying jobs in America. In 98, Jimmy's son, James P. Hoffa, was overwhelmingly elected Teamster president. In spite of his notable lack of union experience, clearly this was a testament to the continuing power long after his disappearance and presumed death of James R. Hoffa. The middle initial, by the way, stood for Riddle. Hmm, how about that? If anyone wants to read farther on the issue, they can read Robert Kennedy's book, The Enemy Within, Stephen Brill's book, The Teamsters, Dan Moldea's book, The Hoffa Wars, Joseph Franco and Richard Hammer's book, Hoffa's Man, Arthur Sloan's book, Hoffa, and Thaddeus Russell's book, Out of the Jungle. So what do you guys think? Who killed Jimmy Hoffa, I mean, it's almost impossible to know 40 years something years later who could have done this, but the mafia and the mob truly just drives me crazy. It's all so fascinating to me, and I might do a deeper dive into this. I kind of want to do a deep dive into who killed Bobby Kennedy, even the original John F. Kennedy, who um, a lot of mysteries, a lot of conspiracies about his death. I certainly have my beliefs about what happened, but as for Hoffa, you know, I'm after knowing what the mob does, they could easily just kill him, throw him in the ocean, burn him in acid or whatever, and you'll never know. So we may never know what happened to Jimmy Alpha, but man, what a what a good what a good what a good mystery to dive into, man. I love that stuff, and you know what? We're probably gonna round out this week, maybe next week, with our American history surprise topics. But uh, if you guys have any specifics ones you have in mind, let me know. I do have a couple I have lined up. But now it is time to round out this video with how we usually end our videos, which is with either a preview or a review of the most recent UFC event. This week, we got ourselves a good one. We had a UFC Noche this past Saturday. It was fun. It was exciting. I love the Mexican theme of this event. They should do more themed events like this. Super enjoyable. Super fun to watch. Let's check it out. So, how did we do? We On, pick, on picks, you know, I went 5-0 and on the prelims. 2-2 two and two on the main card. So, prelims were better than the main card. Um, all time now in main card predictions, we are 479 and 339. So we're up 140. I think that's pretty good. For the year, we're 108 and 62. So over 60, over 50%, I think. And uh, as for this event, yeah, two and two on the main card. But let's get it rolling with the prelims into the main event. Let's round this out, ladies and gentlemen. The 25th episode of the Surprise Jab Podcast. Kicking off our prelims, we had Josephine Knutson taking on Marnik Mann. And oh my goodness, this may have been the most impressive performance of the whole card. 
and it wasn't even a finish. Josephine Knutson, of course, had fought on the road to UFC last year, didn't get a contract, fought on Dana White's Contender Series earlier this season, actually in August, didn't get a contract. She steps in on short notice to take on Marnik Mann, who actually was stepping down on short notice, and absolutely destroys her. 81 significant strikes to 8 in favor of Josephine, 147 total strikes to 39 in favor of Josephine, and 10 minutes and 49 seconds of control time. Wow, Josephine Knutson improves to 7-0. and Marduk Mann falls to 6-2. and This was crazy. She absolutely destroyed her. Um, I know for a fact she should have tried to get a finish here, but hey, all credit to Josephine. I mean, just Marnik had nothing to offer her whatsoever. She probably could have finished her, but I mean, hey, she beat her up on the feet, beat her up on the ground. Just a clear skill discrepancy. And Josephine Knutson, welcome to the UFC. I hope they bring her back. I really hope they do. She was super entertaining. She was super enjoyable to watch. And I want to see more of it. I want to see more. The women's strawweight division will always take new fires. Fires? Fighters. Always take new fighters. Anyways, moving into um, our second fight of the evening. Lightweight matchup between Charlie Campbell and Alex Reyes. Alex Reyes' first fight in six years as he took on Charlie Campbell, who had been coming off a loss to the Contender Series over a year ago. Man, oh man, not only did Charlie absolutely destroy Alex, but he got a performance bonus. The fight lasted 3 minutes and 38 seconds. Charlie outstrikes Alex 43-14 to 14 in significant strikes. Man, he dropped him, and he was, honestly, I thought Alex would have, should have been out of there way earlier. He managed to survive, but, oh, not for too much longer, as he gets knocked out cold by um, <laughs> Charlie Campbell, who was just on point. Wow, Charlie Campbell improves the 8-2 and two of the cannibal. Mm. Welcome to the UFC. That's for Alex Reyes. Now 0-2 in the UFC, been knocked down round one. After being gone for so long, I think Alex Reyes may need to retire. As for Charlie, stick around, buddy. Wow, you looked good. Only 28 years old. I'm happy to see more of him. He gets a performance bonus on this event. Every fighter got a performance bonus. Incredible. No fight of the night, although we'll get to that later. But for once, every fighter who got a victory getting a performance bonus. That makes me so happy. Dana giving out 50 Gs. And into our third prelim of the night, Tracy Cortez taking on Jasmine Jasu Davish. And man, Tracy Cortez, she looked good and she fought good, beating Jasmine Jusavis by unanimous decision. 29, 28, 30, 27, 30, 27. Just a typical, typical performance. I mean, Al boxes are in round one, 39 significant strikes to 24. Round two, also 28 to 18, was able to uh, survive two takedowns landed by Jasmine for a minute and 52 seconds of control time. Then defends four takedowns in round number three, and now strikes her 36 to 35. Significant wise, total strike wise, she had more 116 than 95, but I mean, just getting it done. And Tracy was currently ranked um, 14th, and I don't know if she can move up any spots, judging that people above her are super good. But good win for her. She improves to 11-1 and and is now 5-0 and in the UFC. 6-0 if you include her contender series victory. Now, I won't lie. She is a decision machine. All these fights have gone the distance. But I got to give it to Brian Ortega, man. You fumbled the bag. Although Brian Ortega, 
is kind of a playboy, so like, we won't knock him too much. As for Jasmine, she's now two and three and two in the UFC, four and two if you include the contender series. And I don't think this hurts her too much. She's a good fighter. She'll bounce back. But good for you, Tracy. Good for you on Mexican Heritage Night. We love it. What we did not love was our next fight. Okay, Edgar Chavez and Daniel Lacerda. This was a weird one. This was very a weird one. Going down in the flyweight division. Um, fight starts off pretty pretty even. Nothing much really going on. I mean, Daniel lands a takedown. Gets a minute, 19 seconds of control time. Edgar's landing on the feet. And then they're kind of in the clinch on the cage. And Edgar slaps in a standing guillotine. Super tight. Daniel Lacerda is kind of holding on. You know, holding his arm up. And his arm goes limp. Okay, that's all we saw. We saw his arm. It's like you're holding your arm on your side, and you just let it hang down. So what what does um, Chris Tognoni do? Chris Tognoni, the ref, steps in, stops the fight. But right when he stops it, we see Daniel Lacerda was not out. You know, if, if a fighter's unconscious, they're going to stop the fight. But he wasn't. Edgar starts celebrating. He's super happy. The, the judges... The replay booth, they look back at it. It turns out Daniel was not unconscious. He was still there. Bad stoppage. It's ruled a no contest. Very sad stuff. Fights overturned. Oh, man. It's very sucky. I wish they could just kept fighting, you know, but it's not how it works, man. Edgar Cherez now 0-1 in the UFC. He lost in Contender Series, lost in the UFC. Now it's a no contest. As for Daniel Lacerda... He is now 0-4 in the UFC with a no contest. This just sucked for both of them, honestly. And Man, just really put a damper on the night. Tough, tough stuff. I say run this fight back. I say run it back as soon as possible. But man, just sucks when the ju- judge, the ref, I should say, steps in and stops it when he shouldn't have. But we've had plenty of bad stoppages in history. I just, you know, I honestly thought he looked out just from his arm going limp. But I guess, I guess not. That's how it goes. And into our next fight, though, very good stuff. Brought the moods back up. Roman Kopilov knocks out Josh Remd in round number two with a punch to the body. It was mwah, beautiful. Roman Kopilov, you're so good. Gets a performance bonus. And man, you know, round one for this fight started off, and Josh Remd was making it competitive. He didn't go over two on takedowns. Roman outlanded him 28 to 22. But round two comes around, and you just saw Roman was getting the better of him on the feet, hurting him to the body, outstriking him 26 to 16. Josh goes over three on takedowns again until four minutes, 44 seconds in, two round number two. With 16 seconds left, Roman lands a huge body shot, just a punch to the liver, and that was that. Josh goes down, Roman steps away, and he gets the victory. And shout out to Roman Kopilov. This is a guy who, in 2019 and 2021, went 0-2 in the UFC. Many were wondering, would he come back? I mean, he had been undefeated, then he had lost his first two fights. But now, since 2022, on a four-fight finish streak, 3-0 and currently in 2023, all of them by knockout. This is the second performance bonus of that streak. He's been looking good. He called out Roman Dolodize, by the way. I mean, Roman Dolodize is currently ranked number seven 
in the men's um, middleweight division, uh, 185, and he doesn't have an opponent coming up, so that is a fight you could make. I would also like to see him versus Andre Munez, Chris Curtis, Kelvin Gaslam, a lot of good options for Roman. As for Josh, he does fall to uh, th- two and three in the UFC, but um, I think they'll keep him, keep him around even after this loss. Head into our final prelim, Lupe Godinez versus Elise Reed in the women's strawweight division. Oh my goodness, another performance bonus as Lupe Godinez absolutely destroys Elise Reed. 21 significant strikes to three. Lupe lands a knockdown in round number one, five for five on takedowns for six and a half minutes of control time. The fight only lasted eight minutes and 38 seconds before Lupe gets a round two rear naked choke. I mean, just domination from Lupe Godinez. Elise Reed did not look like she belonged in there. Got dominated on the feet, on the ground. I loved it. Lupe Godinez now on a three-fight winning streak is now actually six and three in the UFC. Three-fight win streak, though, more notable. As for Elise Reed, she has uh, now been win-loss, win-loss. She's now 3-4 and four in the UFC. I personally wouldn't bring her back. But this is hilarious. All of Elise's losses are by finish. All of her wins are by decision. <laughs> Loopy, though, uh, first finish in the second finish in the UFC. First since 2021. I love it. So it's in the women's strawweight division, man. I'd like to see Loopy get in the rankings. Maybe have her fight uh, Tabitha Ritchie, Michelle Warson Gomez. I don't know. Um, I forgot to mention earlier who I think Tracy Cortez should fight next. I like her versus number 11 ranked Amanda Hebus. So I think we should do that fight for her. But good stuff from Loopy. I loved it. My spirits were high. I was 5-0. and The no contest doesn't count against me because no one can predict that. I was ready for the main card. And it came on just as we were arriving to the party. And man, it, it, it started off brutal. It started off pretty brutal. Kyle, Nun- Kyle Nelson and Fernando Padilla putting on a dud, man. I mean, Fernando, I mean, coming off a huge knockout of Julian Arosa back in April, finished him in just over a minute. He asked for Kyle Nelson, a decision machine. I was hoping that he would get finished, but sadly, he did not. Fernando. Loses to Kyle. Kyle wins by unanimous decision. 30-27, were the judges' scorecards. Not much to say here. A2 significant strikes to 72 in favor of Kyle. Um, yeah, just outboxed him every round. Uh, round one, Fernando landed one more significant strike than him. Round two, Kyle outlanded him by eight. And then round three, Kyle outlanded him by three. Not much to say here. I mean... Kyle Nelson now on a little two-fight win streak here. Three-fight unbeaten streak after he had a draw. Looking pretty good. I, I don't really know what could be next for him. Or Fernando. After a fight like this, you can't really think of anything else for these guys. Very dull fight to start the card. Then Daniel Zaluber got us going. Daniel Zaluber taking on Christos Giagos. Cinches up around two. And a conda choking. I mean, after round one... Where Christos had outlanded him 26 to 12 on the feet. I was getting a little worried that Daniel's going to lose. Daniel finds a way to the ground with it, just getting on his neck, bringing him to the ground, locks him in an anaconda choke. And that was that. Christos had to go to sleep. I think he tapped actually, but good win for Daniel's Louver. Now on a little two fight win streak, two and one in the UFC, 14 and one professionally. I loved it. As for Christos, he's now one and three. 
his last four fights. Man, good for you, Daniel. You get the performance bonus. You get an anaconda choke. Good for him in the lightweight division. A lot of people to fight in the lightweight. I mean, gosh, you could go through so many people. I can't even think of any. See, I went earlier from the card. Haven't fight Charlie Campbell because it's on my mind and fresh. But, yeah, good win for Daniel. Another person who got a good win was in our third fight of the main card in one of the craziest, craziest things. Raul Rosas Jr., the 18-year-old, takes on Terrence Mitchell, who had previously lost earlier in the UFC, earlier this year. Knocks him out in 54 seconds. Absolutely crazy stuff for Raul Rosas Jr. I mean, he just came out right when the bell Right when the bell rang, he had this fire under him. He was angry. He wanted to get after it. And boy, did he. I was all for it. 54-second TKO victory for Raul. He drops him with a punch. Surprised he didn't knock him out cold. Gets on his back. Is wailing on him, wailing on him, wailing on him. And the ref had to stop it. I mean, Mark Smith couldn't allow too much more damage to occur. Raul gets the victory. He improves to 8-1. Is now 2-1 in the UFC. 3-1 if you include the contender series. As for Terrence Mitchell... 14-4 and four professionally, but it's now 0-2 in the UFC, but finished in both of those in round number one. Wow, Raul Rosas Jr., I love it. He said he has the potential to be a superstar. I agree. I agree with you, Raul. You are an absolute savage. I love it. I love it so much. Um, as for um, what could be next for you, Raul, I, I just don't know. I just don't know what to do with you, Raul. I mean, you're super good. I say let's not push him. I say let's wait, per se, have him fight some lower-level people. He's still only 18 years old. Let's not give him the Chase Hooper treatment and have him face Alex Caceres. But, man, I'm uh, I'm happy for him. Uh, I don't even know who he can fight next. Anyone on this card that's a bandwait? No. Who knows? But you know what? We'll see. We'll see. The main event, another... Um, Interesting fight. I actually did not see the main event at all. I only saw like glimpses of it because I was like walking home from the party. But from what I saw, this was just a technical fight, unfortunately, from two guys who should have been trying to finish each other. Kevin Holland took on Jack Della Maddalena. Um, totals for the fight, 127 significant strikes to 105 in favor of Kevin Holland. Kevin goes 0 for 2 on takedowns. Uh, both He shot for both of those in round number 2. But yeah, round one, Jack outstruck him 41 to 40. So Jack get, takes round one. Round two, Kevin outlands 49 to 34. So Kevin wins round two. And then Kevin outstruck him by eight in round number three. But um, it sounded like people thought Jack won. Judges had it by split decision 29 28, 29 28, 28 29 in favor of Jack Della Maddalena. But yeah, Jack gets it done. But, you know, certainly not as entertaining as his last fight. And uh, I just don't know. Just kind of a lame fight. Definitely not fight of the night right here. Um, Jack now improves to 16-2 and two and is now 6-0 and oh in the UFC. But after starting off with four straight round one finishes, he's now had two split decisions. I mean, this Kevin Holland one, I, I honestly thought Kevin won it. But, I mean, what can I say? I didn't really watch it. But, hey, you know what? What's best for business? Jack will probably move up to the number 13 spot in the rankings. And could be looking at someone like uh, Sean Brady, maybe Jeff Neal, maybe Vicente Luque, guys like that. As for Kevin Holland, he, he called out Neil Magny. I like that fight. 
Um, other fun fights for Kevin Holland can just be anyone. I feel like I feel like Kevin Holland is more of a fun fighter, you know. I, he just doesn't strike me as someone who's going to move up the ranks at welterweight. But I hope he does because I really do like Kevin Holland. And I was sad he lost. It's probably more I'm probably more sad that he lost than anything. But hey, that's just how it goes in the UFC. Jack moves on. Kevin, who I like, he called out Neil Magny. That's a fair call out. I feel I like that call out. Okay, let's get into the main event. Usually, I'm sad to get into the main event. Kind of happy this time. Kind of ready to get this over with. Move into the week. But UFC Noche rounded out with Alexa Grasso versus Valentina Shevchenko. Personally felt this should have got fight of the night honors, but hey, who am I to say? So, of course, if anyone knows, this was a split draw. It was a draw. No one won. Alexa retains by a... I guess she retains by decision, but I mean, just an interesting fight. So, let me give you the totals. We'll go by round, then we'll read the judges' scorecards. Alexa Grasso, one knockdown landed in round number two for 84 significant strikes to 80 in favor of Alexa Grasso, 262 total strikes to 199 in favor of Alexa Grasso. Alexa Grasso threw 408 strikes. That's crazy. One for two on takedowns for Alexa Grasso for two minutes and 39 seconds of control time. Valentina Shevchenko, four for seven on takedowns for eight minutes and 37 seconds of control time. Round number one, um, Valentina outstrikes Alexa 14 to 12 in significant strikes. Alexa outstrikes her in total strikes 60 to 25. Valentina landed one takedown for a minute and 20 seconds. I think the consensus was Valentina won round um, one. Round two, though, Alexa drops her on the feet. Valentina is then able to land a takedown and get three minutes of control time. Significant strikes 28 to 15 in favor of Alexa. 86 to 62 in total strikes in favor of Alexa. Alexa wins round number two, so it's 1-1. Heading into round three. Four to nine in favor of significant strikes for Valentina. 35 to 40 in favor of significant strikes for Valentina. And one takedown for three minutes and 16 seconds of control time. Valentina clearly wins round number three. Round four, though. Alexa outlands are 20 to 19 for a significant 38 to 31 for total strikes. She lands a takedown of her own for 37 seconds. Valentina lands a takedown of her own for 58. I gave round four to Alexa, so it was all tied up heading into round five, as it should be. And things got interesting now. Total strikes, 43 to 41 in favor of Alexa. Significant strikes, 23 to 20 in favor of Valentina. Both women fail to get takedowns, but Alexa takes her back like she did in the first fight. Manages to almost sink in a rear naked choke. A minute and 30 seconds of control time. She ends on top. I gave it to Alexa. I had Alexa Grasso winning personally. 48 to 47. Now, the judges had it. 48-47 Valentina, which I can see. 48-47 Alexa, as I saw it. And Mike Bell scored it 47-47, giving Alexa a 10-8 in round number five. Now, the only way I could see it being a 10-8 is if he, is if you look at the fact she almost finished the fight. But it just, it didn't feel like a 10-8 personally. It did not even seem like a 10-8 fight to me. And it's a very controversial opinion right now. It's the big talk of the MMA world is that Mike Bell, like, this is just pure rigging of a fight. But at the same time, I mean, you know, he he actually had Valentina up 3-1. to so if he would have given it to Alexa, Valentino would have won nonetheless. And I think he kind of thought that Alexa should win. 
So I think that could be the case. Is he kind of was looking at a scorecard going, I can't go back and change that. But I also don't think Valentina won. So unfortunately, that's how it had to go. But hey, you know, I think they're going to run back a trilogy. I personally want to see some of the up-and-coming ten- contenders like Aaron Blanchfield and Man of Fiorot get a title shot because I kind of hate rematches. But you know what? I'm loyal to the belt. I like Alexa Grasso, though, so I'm still happy she's champion. As for Valentina, though, the UFC 5 cover curse is real. Adesanya lost his belt. Valentina couldn't regain her belt. Let's hope Volk is um, taking on a... Let's hope Volk is good in this next fight, or else the UFC 5 cover athletes might uh, all suck. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, good good win for Alexa. I personally say Alexa Grasso should fight Aaron Blanchfield, and you do Valentina versus Manny Fiorat. That's how I see it. But yeah, Alexa Grasso remains the number one pound-for-pound fighter. It turns out she's meant to be there. As for Valentina, yeah, I guess she stays as the number one contender. A very close fight, though. Uh, pretty good fight night. Glad it wasn't a pay-per-view. You know what? We just move on. I mean, that's not much to say. Uh, top moments. I mean, Raul Rosas Jr., probably my favorite finish of the card. I also love Charlie Campbell's knockout, Roman Kopilov's knockout. Ruby Godinez destroyed. That's how it goes. Um, but yeah, just uh, leaves a sour taste in the mouth when you end with a draw. But we move on. We move on every week, except for after next week. Then we don't move on because we take a big break. But yes, next Saturday, this upcoming Saturday, we got a very good fight night. It's going to be a good one coming at you from the UFC Apex. Sadly, we don't get a crowd. We've been spoiled with crowds for, oh my gosh, so many events now. I think our last non-crowd event was like August 12th. It's been over a month. Wow. Um, Hoffelf, Zeev, and Matus, Gamrot in the lightweight division in the main event. Those are two very good fighters. I'm going to be torn on who to pick for that one. Um, a good featherweight match, Bryce Mitchell, Dan Ige, going to be very competitive there. Marina Rodriguez, Michelle Warson, Gomez, both of those women need a win in the women's strawweight division. Brian Battle, AJ Fletcher, two up-and-coming welterweights, I love it. Ricardo Ramos, Charles Jordan, talk about two even fighters right there. This is going to be a good card. And we even get to see Mohamed Usman, Kamaru's younger brother, in action. Going to be fun. But yeah, we'll cover all that on... Um, Probably Thursday's episode, I believe, but uh, Wednesday we may be doing a surprise episode with uh, two guests. So currently working on that, seeing how it's going to work with one mic, as I was unfortunately not able to figure out how to get two mics to work on my computer. I think either my computer's broke or I bought the wrong mic. I don't know. It just did not work out, frustrating me. But here we are. You know, we're not a big podcast. We're just a little simple, small guy podcast, so I suppose I don't need to worry about things like that, so... We'll leave it at that, ladies and gentlemen. Episode 25, the 25th anniversary of the Surprise Jab podcast. I kind of just wanted to end it with a big uh, thank you to all my listeners. I mean, when I started this in July, I never intended to make it this far. I can't believe people actually listen to it. You know, I always kind of thought people would listen to it. But knowing people do, it's just incredible. Um, Actually, as of today, we have 450 downloads of the episodes of all time, which I just think is absolutely incredible. Um, we've got downloads from Belgium. We got downloads from African countries like Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria. Ones from the Ireland. Ones from Argentina. From the United Kingdom, and all over the United States. So I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone, and I, I truly appreciate it. It does not go unappreciated. Um, reach out to me on socials if you want to come on as a guest. I'm happy to have anyone. Happy to talk about anything. 
It's a surprise yet podcast. You can be surprised with all sorts of things. But yes, next episode could potentially be talking to two of my buddies who are hockey experts, NFL enthusiasts. We'll let you know about that. But we'll be back Thursday with episode 26, most likely, or 27, depending on the name. But thank you all for listening to this one. I mean, this was a fun one. Got to talk about uh, NFL, UFC, and a surprise topic. I mean, that's just the name of the game on this podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I love it. So I hope everyone has an amazing week. We'll be back to you with more content. But yeah, just incredibly blessed, incredibly happy. I hope you all stay blessed and are happy. Have a good one, everyone. Talk to you.